I'm very happy to introduce you to Peter Norton today. He is the author of Atanarama, a book that is perhaps really more related to the current time period than we might realize, the age of autonomous vehicles. Peter, welcome. Thank you, Madhavi. It's great to be here. You are a historian. Why did you think of writing about autonomous I never expected to write about autonomous vehicles. I'm a historian, like you said, and I studied particularly the history of urban transportation and cities and people and streets. And uh, I found a lot of audiences were interested in this subject, including people who want a more sustainable, inclusive, affordable, livable future in cities. And I found that when I spoke to those audiences, I would often get questions at the end about the future, and in particular about whether autonomous vehicles would solve some of these problems or relieve some of these problems or just make them worse. And I didn't feel like I knew what I needed to know to give those questioners the confident answers that they deserved. And so I started to look and I, I was shocked at what I found. And I thought I need to write about this. You've noted that you're in, part of the influence in this book is also Rachel Carson. Could you perhaps connect the autonomous vehicle to, to Rachel Carson for us? Yeah, we, we wonder today how we are going to possibly manage to make the changes we need to make for a more sustainable world. And it can feel very disheartening and, and depressing uh, when we recognize the kinds of changes we have to make to make it work. And so I needed inspiration to um, participate in that effort. And I found nothing more inspiring than Rachel Carson's 1962 bestseller, Silent Spring. Rachel Carson was a biologist and she observed the proliferation of highly toxic pesticides. She said we should call them biocides because they simply kill. They don't just kill pests. And she's perfectly right about that. And she noticed that a lot of well-meaning gardeners and foresters and farmers were applying these toxins in ways that were going to have very devastating effects if the practices didn't change and change pretty quickly. And so she wrote this caution, beautiful book called Silent Spring, and it was a bestseller and it changed a lot of minds. And I thought, well, what would be her kind of message about urban mobility and specifically about autonomous vehicles? And how would she help people recognize that autonomous vehicles are hazardous, much like insecticides were hazardous and still are. And so that was my inspiration. I proceeded differently because she was a biologist and I'm a historian. So her argument was biological and ecological and mine is historical, but that's the inspiration. How do autonomous vehicles give us a false perception of being sustainable? It's extraordinary to me that autonomous vehicles are often promoted as if they will make transport more sustainable. This is really incredible. But to sort of present that argument, it begins with the fact that autonomous vehicles will, if they ever really become common at all, would be electric. They would be battery electric vehicles powered by a battery. And that means there would be no greenhouse gas emissions, no carbon dioxide coming out of the exhaust pipe. And so in that sense, they would be zero emissions vehicles. Of course, you don't have to know a lot about how electricity is generated to know that 
the electric power generated at the power plants does emit a lot of greenhouse gases. Certainly, uh, you can get a share of that generated by wind power or by solar power or by hydroelectric power or even by nuclear power. But in much or most of the world and in the US, most of that power comes from fossil fuels, the combustion of fossil fuels. Depending on how you count in the USA, it's about 75 or 80% of our electric power comes from fossil fuels. Now, of course, there's an argument that says, well, we will make that fraction of the grid from renewables grow with time. And, and as it becomes a larger fraction, that will make the cars cleaner. The other factor, though, that gets missed in that assertion is that if they really do proliferate, if electric vehicles, including autonomous vehicles, really do proliferate and we drive just as much as we do now, we will be demanding vastly power than we demand now recharge the vehicle. And so that will get charter to increase the share of the electric power grid that's generated by renewable sources. Are autonomous vehicles superior to ordinary cars? And if so, in what way? Well, if by ordinary cars, we mean what's on the road now, which is overwhelmingly still combustion engine, gasoline powered automobiles. And if we think of autonomous vehicles as battery electric vehicles, like, you know, some cars that we have on the roads now, they are superior in the specific measure of the emissions that they put out from their exhaust pipes because, you know, of course, electric vehicles don't emit greenhouse gases, don't emit carbon dioxide from the exhaust pipe because they don't burn fossil fuels on the vehicle. Of course, fossil fuels are burned to generate the electric power. Um, the vast majority of the electric power grid in the U.S., something like 75%, depending on how you count, comes from the combustion of fossil fuels. And this means that the electric vehicle, whether it's an autonomous vehicle or not, is still responsible for the emission of substantial greenhouse gases for the generation of the electric power that they use. Now, we can get a cleaner grid. That would mean increasing the share of the grid that's generated by renewables like wind, solar, some would also add hydroelectric and nuclear to that mix. But uh, to do that, it's going to be important that we not substantially increase the total demand for electric power, because then you need far more renewables to account for that additional demand. And so if we drive just as much, say, 10 years from now as we do now, only in mostly electric vehicles then, we may find that our grid is as dirty then as it is today. And with regard to that, what would be the benefit then of having an autonomous vehicle? Who's benefiting from this vehicle? Who's benefiting is a very important question. And the people who are benefiting have an interest in persuading us, the general public, that the autonomous vehicle is cleaner, safer, and causes less traffic congestion. This is the arguments that they're making. Now, if you look at what they say to each other in their consultancy reports in, in their trade journals about why we need to convert to autonomous vehicles, you find that there are other motives. It's not uh, primarily about sustainability or congestion relief or safety. 
what you often find them saying to each other is, this is a great way to collect far more monetizable data from people. Monetizable meaning data they can turn into money because it helps them sell targeted advertisements, which are, you know, more valuable to advertisers than, than broadcast general advertisements. It'll help them sell media, entertainment, movies, games, music. It'll help you engage drivers with social media, which, which of course generates data as well, and also hosts targeted advertisements. So why this connects specifically with autonomous vehicles is that right now, for many people, there are only two moments in their day when they're disconnected from media for a significant amount of time. And those two points are when they're sleeping and when they're driving and therefore have to watch the road. And because you have to watch the road, hopefully you're not being distracted by social media, by games or by movies. And that's a loss to people who generate or collect monetizable data from people while they're consuming media. And so this means that the real attraction of vehicle automation for many people in tech and the automaker partners that the tech companies have, the real attraction is that we will open up a new frontier of data collection, namely data collection from the person in a car who today can't generate a lot of data because they're watching the road, but tomorrow with autonomous vehicles could generate far more data because now they'll be in immersive media generating it. Now, one other area of autonomous vehicles that is really interesting is most of us have this perception that it's a machine that's making the decisions for us if we're in it. But please explain, is that necessarily true that it's a machine making decisions? The people who sell autonomous vehicles or who promote them like the word autonomous. It helps us think of the vehicle as some kind of hyper-rational robotic being that's incapable of the kind of human failures that ordinary human drivers have. So ordinary human drivers may be impatient, they may be drowsy, they may uh, have anger or something like that, and they can certainly be distracted or inebriated. And all of these deficiencies in human drivers are supposedly be erased if we have a, a robotic driver instead. But we have to recognize that actually the robot that's driving the vehicle is ultimately human as well in the following sense. Everything an autonomous vehicle does, it does because its human developers wanted it to do it. Now there may be exceptions and those exceptions are when the car fails. So for example, if the human developers failed to account for a certain kind of object that might appear on the road, the vehicle might respond to that object badly causing a problem. And so what that means is that when the vehicle is performing as desired, as its developers desired, it's really being driven by human beings in the form of the coders, the companies that decided how this vehicle is supposed to drive. So a so-called autonomous vehicle, when it's performing as desired, is performing in response to the wishes of its developers, of the company who designed it and who chose how it would respond to given situations. 
those times when those developers are not in control of what the vehicle does is when the vehicle is dangerous. Like maybe the developers failed to imagine a certain kind of situation and the machine learning software never encountered it, then the vehicle might perform badly. And that's the time, the only time when the vehicle is not in the control of human beings. And those are all undesirable moments. What this means is that an autonomous vehicle is really not autonomous at all. It is either driven by the human beings who developed the programs that operate it and the companies who chose how it would behave, or it's behaving more or less at random and is therefore hazardous. Now, I recently had to do some research myself on artificial intelligence and the idea of learning, because AI has that learning capacity as well, so it can learn from the data that you feed it and continuously readjust. One, one aspect of this was related to self-driving vehicles and learning from the way people drive on the road, that it could actually take an, an automobile that is meant to be defensive in nature and convert it to one that's more offensive or aggressive in its driving style. Are there any concerns on your part with regard to that? Oh, absolutely. There's several pieces to that, and I'll take them one at a time. The claim that lets people call autonomous vehicles autonomous is artificial intelligence. So the, the assumption then is that something that has a simulation of intelligence, and it's only a simulation of intelligence, therefore has something like the autonomy that we associate with intelligence. So when we make decisions in our own day-to-day -day lives, we're exercising our intelligence in a way that gives us autonomy. In other words, lets us make decisions for ourselves. Machine learning is, is another reason that is used to justify calling autonomous vehicles autonomous because the programs can improve as they gain more experience through machine learning. And that improvement supposedly gives the vehicles autonomy. But take the human analogy of learning. We know that there are different kinds of learning. In one kind of learning, we learn to develop our own judgment. We learn to evaluate a situation. We learn different perspectives and we learn all to uh, sort of evaluate alternatives. But the kind of learning that an autonomous vehicle has in its machine learning program is not like that at all. It is much more like the human kind of learning that we call indoctrination. When we train a soldier, for example, to think of the enemy as inherently evil and therefore worth killing, for example, you know, in a lot of scenarios, at least, we would call that a kind of indoctrination. We don't want the soldier to exercise autonomy. We don't want the soldier to exercise judgment. We want the soldier, in that case, I'm talking about, say, the officers, want the soldier to learn, but they want the, the soldier to learn what the officer intends for them to learn. They don't want the soldier to learn to exercise judgment. Now, that's a close analog with machine learning for an automobile in the sense that the machine learning is not there to endow the car with judgment, discretion, or a capacity to reason for itself or make its own decisions, in part because the car has no basis for making decisions. It doesn't care about anything. It's an object. It doesn't care if it goes off the cliff and destroys itself together with the people in it. The people who care what the machine learns are going to make sure that the car learns exactly what they want it to learn. That's indoctrination. And that means that really when what we call machine learning is the better analogy would be machine indoctrination. And that means that the car's behavior reflects the interests, the car's behavior reflects the preferences 
of its developer exactly like the indoctrinated person's actions reflect the, the, the interests of the person who indoctrinated them. But taking this a step further, does this maybe tell us a little bit more about us as a society, given the types of decisions that an autonomous vehicle might make? Yes, it does. So it tells us certainly about the companies developing the vehicles. We know, for example, that when a self-driving Uber killed Elaine Hertzberg, a pedestrian in Tempe, Arizona, in March 2018, that the people who were responsible for how that vehicle would behave, including people at Uber, wanted to be sure that what they called the user experience would be good. What that meant to them was that the vehicle would not suddenly apply the brakes all the time or steer around possible hazards all the time, because if it did, that would be, you know, an experience that nobody would want to pay to get. You wouldn't pay to ride in an Uber where the brakes were automatically getting applied every few seconds or every couple of minutes without parent cause. Now, if that's your preference, if you don't want to have the vehicle braking too often, then you're going to have to take some chances simply because the technology on board the vehicle is going to constantly detect things that might have a 1% chance or a 5% chance or a 0.1% chance of being a very serious hazard. And so the question becomes not how do we make this vehicle never dangerous, because the answer then would be to have the vehicle not go, but rather how do we have a vehicle that goes fast enough and steadily enough to be of interest to people who would be willing to pay to ride in it without being lethal. One of the solutions, of course, is to care more about the occupants of the vehicle and their experience than about the risks to others outside the vehicle, like, for example, Elaine Hertzberg. And I don't want to blame Uber too much because its business decision in that case is the same kind of business decision that any company that wants to make a profit in autonomous vehicles is going to have to face. They can't make the vehicles perfectly safe because if they did, no one would want to ride in one. Now the question could be, nothing is perfectly safe, but relative to a human driving a car, is an autonomous vehicle safer? Well, I have to begin that important question by saying that no matter what a human is driving the car, whether it's the human developers who developed the program and their corporate bosses who decided what the program would value and not value, or whether it's a person sitting behind a wheel. Now, those, it's true, those are very different situations, but they're also both human situations. Now, an autonomous vehicle could be theoretically vastly safer than an ordinary vehicle with a person sitting behind the wheel. The difficulty is that to get there with the technology that we have now or the technology that we can expect or hope to have in the next several years really requires that the vehicle would have to go extremely slowly, much too slowly to be of use to uh, paying passengers, or it would have to stay only on grade separated divided highways where there are no pedestrians to hit, they can't easily get out of their lane or, or they don't have cross traffic to deal with. And we really don't need high technology for highway transportation because highways are already pretty easy to drive compared to say driving in a city. Where the automation is the least promising so far is in an ordinary semi-urban or urban street that's kind of busy. We want there to be pedestrians around. We need a future where people continue to walk places, where there may be cyclists, people waiting at a bus stop, people crossing the street to get to the bus stop, perhaps not 
going the quarter mile necessary to get to a crosswalk to do it. In other words, busy, what you might call chaotic or, or just lively environments, that's where an autonomous vehicle performs typically much worse than a human driver. Of course, there are bad drivers, human drivers too. And so we are nowhere remotely close to a point where vehicle autonomy, so-called, makes the vehicle safer. I have to say there is some vehicle tech that can make vehicles safer. It's pretty clear that automatic emergency braking systems have helped and also blind spot warning systems have helped people. They help the human driver behind the steering wheel more successfully manage a hazardous situation. So I want to be clear that tech can be helpful, but we have no grounds yet for expecting that autonomous vehicles are helpful. What would you like to have as a final comment to our listeners today? Yeah, my final comment would be that what we've been missing from this conversation about autonomous vehicles is some history. You know, there's a proverb that says, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And by that, of course, the proverb is suggesting that if somebody deceives you once, they are to blame. But if somebody could deceive you, the same source of deception deceives you twice, you've been gullible and you, you need to start learning from those unfortunate experiences. My experience studying the development of autonomous vehicles is that this is a deception that we are now in the fourth generation of. We were promised crash-free, congestion-free driving of conventional cars 80 years ago. And there have been recurrent generations of this promise. I think we're now in the fourth generation of them. I called the book Autonorama because the early generations of this same promise were called Futurama. General Motors called their spectacular displays of the city of the future Futuramas from a fusion of the words future and diorama. And we've had now four generations of this kind of spectacle. You can see it now if you sort of, anytime you do a Google image search, for example, of say autonomous vehicle future, you will see what I'm talking about, where we are presented with really attractive, flashy, gleaming, attractive futures where car dependency works thanks to technology. Technology is amazing, but amazing technology does not make car dependency work. That has been the effort that's been going on for 80 years, and it's time that we get this right and stop being deceived. Amazing technology does not make car dependency work. You bring up a very important point, which is that we look at history more so as a listing of dates rather than understanding the context to see how humans, how we have changed generation over generation, and if we're still duped by the same types of, as you noted, spectacular that we have been in the past. As an economist, I'll just say that it's, it's amazing to me when you start to think about how progress has been measured because only about consumer goods. It's not about our intellectual right. progress. It's not about that we become better human beings, have greater sensitivities, create more ethical societies. In fact, as what you've just noted, even in terms of the monetization of autonomous vehicles, it's all about keeping us so busy that we just become an engine for making money for somebody else. Exactly right. And I think the people who stand to make money by this kind of deception uh, have developed a lot of skill at misleading us. And we need to develop 
the skills necessary to not mislead. And we certainly have some. Uh, the advertising of a duration though is stated because we've gotten savvier at, de at detecting the techniques. But every time one technique becomes outdated, a new technique is developed. So we, we have to keep up and not be so mis easily misled. Thank you so much for your time today, Peter. I really appreciate it. And I'm looking forward to hearing back from people who read your book. So thank you. Madhavi, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for your interest and for your time and for your wonderful questions. You, you really made my job easy and I enjoyed the conversation a lot.